Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Adelaide Writers' Week. Uh, so my name is Jo Dyer, and I'm the director here for two more days. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been an honour and a privilege. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we are, of course, seated here on Ghana land all this week at Writers' Week, unceded and enduringly Aboriginal land, a place where people have gathered and stories are being told for many thousands of years. So we pay our respects to their elders past and present and we acknowledge their ongoing custodianship of this land. Now, it was back in 2017, another eon, it seems, that the world woke to the news that one of Hollywood's most powerful men, winner of multiple Oscars, major donor to the Democrats and self-styled <laughs> industry underdog and champion of independent movie making was actually a terrifying sexual predator. Mm who used the power that he wielded as one of the film industry's most successful and influential producers to prey on young women, often starting out in the industry. Harvey Weinstein's demise was a seismic moment, but an interesting thing about the cultural and political moment was that as the avalanche of stories spilled out into the open and the sheer scope and scale of what was occurring seemed revelatory, it became clear that many of the high-profile cases that were being reported on were, in fact, open secrets. They'd been known about for years in certain circles and no one had done anything about them. As noted in the quarterly essay that's going to frame some of our discussion this afternoon, the behaviour of so many of the men whose secrets were known and kept wasn't deemed sexual assault, but rather just shit that happened to women. Two very known, well-known women have joined us today to discuss this. Jess Hill is an investigative journalist and author of the groundbreaking stellar award-winning book, See What You Made Me Do, that gave us new insight into domestic violence. Oh, no, stop. <laughs> and this powerful and rigorous quarterly essay from December last year, The Reckoning How Me Too Is Changing Australia. Grace Tame is last year's Australian of the Year. She's old news now. <laughs> but she was elevated to that role for her advocacy as part of Nina Fennell's Let Her Speak campaign, which we'll talk a bit more about later in the conversation. And she is celebrated for her unapologetic advocacy. Yeah. Hell yeah. As we look back on 2021 and the revolution that seemed to sweep the country, fuelled by female rage, it's important to note that for a while it very nearly didn't, and the Me Too movement was nearly derailed in this country. While important conversations were happening in the US and starting to get underway in Australia, there remained a focus on high-profile scalps. And after a team led by Kate McClymon broke the story of Don Burke in the age, for the age and the ABC, News Corps were clearly worried that they didn't have their own scalp. Instead of months of patient work by investigative journalists leading to stories with multiple women telling their stories on the record, the Daily Telegraph's gossip columnist rushed to print with a punny headline about Geoffrey Rush playing King Lear, get it, who then elected to sue. Jess, did Australia's draconian defamation laws nearly derail the movement here? And if so, how? <laughs> a lot of people have run that narrative and it's impossible to say whether we would have had an American-style outing of powerful men had it not been for defamation laws. Um, I think, though, and I'm, I'm advised by, you know, defamation lawyers who I spoke to, namely uh, Michael Bradley and Josh Bornstein, um, that actually... What the Daily Telegraph did by outing a complainant against her wishes um, without even actually being in touch with her um, that and having not established the evidence before putting out the front page, they handed Geoffrey Rush a defamation trial on a platter. Mm. Um, and <laughs> later the counsel, legal counsel for News Corp was at a press freedom breakfast um, with other notable, like Kate McClymont, um, Peter Grester, and I think had the 
gall to say that, you know, if Harvey Weinstein um, had been a, a case in Australia, then, you know, he would be still be producing films. And my sense of it was if Harvey Weinstein had been reported on by the Daily Telegraph, he would still be making films um, because you did a crap job. Um, and actually, to out powerful men for histories of sexual predation, you need to, as the lawyer Michael Bradley uh, described it, you need to prepare the complainants who are featured in your story as though you're, you're preparing them for trial. That's not just because we've got tough defamation laws. It's because it is a serious thing to out someone as a sexual predator in a national newspaper. And you need to have the evidence to back up your claims. So I personally think that that case gave... Um, I guess boosted the confidence of other known men who have taken on defamation claims against their complainants. Um, I also think, though, that we have a culture in Australia of mateship, mm. for better or worse. <laughs> um, and I don't think Australians were ready to have the type of mass outing of sexual predators, of known and admired sexual predators like we had in, in the States. The United States, for all of its flaws, has a culture of comparable transparency. Um, I don't think defamation laws or not that that would have happened, but in a way, that not happening laid created space for something, I think, much more seismic and long-lasting to occur, because actually outing individual perpetrators is not the end goal. The end goal is systemic change. And I think actually we have a chance at that that is better than what's happened in the States. Can I just point out someone who actually said our defamation laws are not fit for purpose during his time as Attorney General? <laughs> Christian bloody Porter even said that. <laughs> That's how bad they are here in Australia. Look, that is true. He was saying they were not fit for purpose until suddenly they suited him. Exactly. Um, fit for this purpose, yeah. not that purpose. Fit yeah. for a certain type of purpose. <laughs> um, the law's capacity to silence women was playing out in a different way, though, for other survivors of sexual assault, wasn't it, Grace? Um, and that was a law that was silencing you and something that you and 16 other um, uh, survivors then took on. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how that campaign came about um, and the success that you ultimately had? Yes, well, I was actually living in the States at the time, interestingly. It was back in uh, 2017, and it sort of happened by accident. Um, so, <laughs> my story is kind of complicated. It, it has many layers of injustice. There wasn't just the um, abuse itself that I suffered at the hands of this um, known um, serial pedophile um, who was at my high school from... 1992 until 2011 when I decided to, to report him to police, um, you know, and I was one of several, several victims of his. Um, so there's that abuse in of itself, um, which was an injustice, um, and then he committed a second crime against me when he was released from prison on good behaviour, believe it or not, um, after only serving one year and nine months of his two-year and ten-month sentence. Um, which he received for um, committing up to 30 uh, counts of rape of a child, um, as well as possessing 28 multimedia files of child abuse material, which included nine videos of uh, adults engaging in sex with children. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so he went to prison, um, and then when he was released from prison, uh, while he was studying at the University of Tasmania on a federally funded PhD scholarship, um, <laughs> yeah, shame, um, and uh, uh, actually he was put into student accommodation um, with fresh 17 and 18-year-old undergraduates. This is a 60-year-old, at this time, um, convicted pedophile. Um, he boasted online um, about what he did to me because somebody called him a pedophile and because he was convicted of um, not the persistent sexual abuse of a child, he was convicted of maintaining a sexual relationship 
with a person under the age of 17. He was able to argue that he wasn't, in fact, a pedophile, but that he was just uh, a person that had a relationship with an underage person. Um, and he then went on to describe in very lewd detail what he did to me, and I can't... Um, because I would actually be committing a crime if I described what he did to me because it constitutes um, <laughs> uh, the production of child abuse material. Um, but he, he went to jail again. Um, and all this happened, obviously, while he was, he was studying his PhD. Um, so there are all these layers of injustice. Um, and, and my mother, who grew up in a working-class family and never got the opportunity to go to university, she was also studying at this university because there's only one university in Tasmania because obviously there's only, like, 50 people in Tasmania. <laughs> um, you know, and so <laughs> all this was happening um, while my mother was studying at university and because I'd buggered off to America to, to, to try to get away from all this trauma. Um, I was a bit removed from it all, but, but you know, we were sort of... We were really struggling to cope and we just thought, this is so wrong, all these layers of injustice. Um, and somebody reached out to us and said, hey, do you want to, to tell this story? Um, because it's just so wrong on so many levels. And they put us in touch with this fantastic uh, journalist, Nina Fennell, who has a, um, uh, a history of reporting on sexual assault and had quite a lot of success um, uh, doing so. And uh, so Nina and I connected um, and we spent months and months at uh, the beginning of 2017, um, you know, going over all the layers um, of my story. And, and that's actually what, what led me to discover what the word grooming was for the first time, um, which was another sort of turning point for me, um, you know, and, and, and um, what really inspired me to pursue a different kind of advocacy because I thought, hang on, this is wrong. Why am I learning about this word for the first time seven years after I've gone through this experience? You know, you know when, you, when you go through a crime or, 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 or when, when we experience most things in life, um, we're sort of equipped with the, the vocabulary to explain what happened to us. You know, like if you're stabbed, for instance, you can say, I, I was stabbed, uh, this is what happened, these were the circumstances. And then we also have the, um, you know, the skill set uh, to, to then ask for help, the appropriate help. Um, but that's certainly not what, 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 what I had. Um, and so there was that part as well. Um, but so, so I guess that's, that's where Nina and I were at. We were, we were documenting all the things that happened to me. Um, and then we got to this uh, impasse because when we were about to, to go to print and Nina was about to, to share my story, um, you know, and especially these layers of grooming, these complexities of the psychological manipulation, which people didn't seem to understand, um, especially because it... It was playing out through all these other layers of injustice, you know. This man had sort of, you know, obviously manipulated the university as well um, and, and the community, you know, because people were just giving him free passes left, right and centre because, as we know, you know, perpetrators don't just groom um, and manipulate their individual targets. They manipulate everyone around them because it's not just a... Um, a single act of abuse. It's an entire ecosystem of abuse, um, as I like to describe it. And so, you know, when we were right on the verge of, of sharing um, my story, we discovered that there was this l prohibitive law um, that stopped child sexual abuse survivors from publicly self-identifying. <laughs> and I go, well, that's just another abuse of power that enables, protects perpetrators because perpetrators were not barred by the same restrictions. It was just the survivors. Now, how is that equal? Because perpetrators already have such control over the narrative. You know, that's built in to the, their experience of the crime, is that they have the agency and control. And here again... Was, was, was that being played out, you know? And, and, and the, the reasoning, the supposed reasoning behind it was that was to protect children from exploitative journalism. Exploitative journalism, the first front page headline that came out after what that man did to me was teacher admits to affair with student. I read that. My family read that. And I was 16. In fact, I read a glorified description of the exact moment that man locked me in a cupboard after I told him months beforehand that I was abused as a six-year-old by an older child who asked me to undress in a cupboard beforehand. You know, it's so messed up. 
It's so messed up how society has all these layers of victim blaming entrenched, codified at every level. And we just don't see it. We, we just allow it. We turn a blind eye. We sweep it under the rug, you know. And if it's, it's not happening to us, it's okay. We just let it go. And, 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 oh. and that's how the Let Her Speak campaign came to be, I suppose, as the long-winded answer to that question. That's a very good answer to that question, though. Very good answer. Well, can I add to the tour de force that Grace just delivered um, that, yes, victim blaming is codified into every layer of our society and into every system, but the work that you and others are doing oh, and have done over me, the, I know, and others are, are doing but, and have done for years, but what has come to the surface, especially in the last couple of years, is an unprecedented community awakening to how that happens. And as you say, this ecosystem of abuse, what we have, where we have erred in our understanding of gendered violence, of child sexual abuse, of, of all these types of um, violence and control mechanisms is we have looked to the incident to explain the whole. Mm. We've looked to the individual rape to explain the whole, the, the assault, the hit. Instead of looking at the entire ecosystem, whether it be the grooming, whether it be the coercive control, whether it be the institutional betrayal, whether it be the betrayal of friends and family, that is the system of abuse mm. that to varying degrees we are all a part of and to, and to an exceptional degree we can all disrupt and change. Mm. So I just want to thank Grace and everyone who has worked in this area because the awakening is happening and it's on. Yeah, and that's, that's why it was so important that there were, you know, there were 16 other brave survivors who lent their stories um, to the cause. And, and, you know, it is because it's a puzzle, you know, and, 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 and all those, those pieces of the puzzle were so vital, um, you know, and, 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 and breaking down these concepts of coercive control and grooming, as you said, you know, it, it, it helps paint this picture. And I think that's what's been so important this year and why I'm so keen to bring this concept of grooming to the fore and one of the things that's been so um you know rewarding for me is speaking with these survivors like who for so long could not explain the layers of psychological manipulation um that they went through you know like people who were going to go to the grave with these stories of abuse um because they didn't have the language because it's not it wasn't taught to me in school you know, that's the missing piece um, of prevention education. Like, why aren't we equipping kids with the knowledge? Knowledge is power. You know who has that knowledge? Perpetrators. That's messed up. That is the imbalance. That's why it's so frustrating that we've got these governments who are like, responses, 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 reviews, reports, inquiries. Yeah, great. It's already bloody happened. Stop it before it starts, you idiots. Excuse me. Well, I think that really has been um, the revelation of the work that you've been doing, Grace, hasn't it? It's been oh, not about... Not just me, though. People have been yelling into a void for a long time. No, no, they absolutely have. Um, this notion of prevention, I think, mm, which yeah. is so important, and how to identify the process of abuse and the fact, the fact that sexual activity is only one part of the whole process of abuse. And I think understanding the process has proven quite transformative in the way that has been brought to the fore by the advocacy of you and others, how we understand perpetrators' modus operandi. Um, you did a fantastic Twitter thread on this, um, which was just so clear and encapsulated so well. Can you talk a little bit about that, um, the process that you described there, um, and how you can, through, through knowledge, um, deliver power? The grooming. Yeah. The, the layers of grooming. Um, well, it, yeah, it's just sort of... It's actually not... It's, it's not my um, uh, intellectual property. Sure. Um, it's, it's something that I have adapted, actually, as my way of coping. Um, when I first discovered it, it was a... <laughs> it was quite a confronting thing to discover. I had two... There were two things that happened, because it was equal parts um, validating, you know, to, to feel like, you know, I wasn't alone, and this was textbook... But also, 
this was textbook. Why didn't someone fucking tell me this? You know? Yeah. Sorry, but that is the level of rage, you know? Absolutely. Because, like, you know, this guy was so good at this stuff. And they are, they are masters of this. And it was to the T, every single thing. It was like he had studied his PhD in this. And, I mean, to an extent he had. Um, one of the things that he was found with was not only this, um, you know, collection of child abuse material, he had on his home computer a trophy file of all the girls that he collected over his 18-year tenure at the school. And guess what? All of them, like me, I come from a broken home. My parents were separated when I was one um, and my childhood was pretty unstable. Um, my parents both loved me and I loved them dearly, but it was, it was not a great way to grow up. Um, I didn't have any consistency. You know, I was three days here, three days there. And, you know, like, I think it's a misperception of me that I'm a rich white girl who went to a private school. I went there on scholarships. You know, my parents are both from the working classes. My dad was a teacher, um, you know, and my, my mum had to work really hard just to pay to get me to private school. Um, you know, and, and, and all the other girls in that trophy file, guess what? They were also from rural areas or they were from broken homes or, you know, like he was an expert. Um, and, and so, so the, the, um, the grooming phases, the, the, the first one is identifying a target. So picking someone who's vulnerable and obviously children inherently are vulnerable. Um, and uh, the, the, the second one is, is, um, is gaining trust um, so, you know, befriending, befriending the target um, to lull them into a false sense of safety and security. Sort of as I described, my situation was at home was, um, you know, it wasn't secure and um, my parents both loved me, but, you know, um, I haven't talked about this a lot publicly because, you know, I don't want to upset my parents, but, you know, my mum worked a job where she didn't come home until like seven o'clock at night and... Um, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with my parents and, um, you know, <laughs> there are gaps and you can fill those in, if you will. Um, and so to have that undivided attention was something that I, I, I was looking for, you know, an adult, um, you know, figure, if you will, who, who gave me that time, um, you know, was, was a novelty to me. Um, and, and the third is, is filling a need, which I guess I sort of, um, uh, is, is, is self-explanatory and, and I've sort of explained that there. And the fourth one is the isolation. And so that's um, actively breaking down um, the, the genuine connections that you have, um, driving wedges between, between people. And um, this pedophile was very, very nasty man and um, actively undermined the, the already tenuous connections that I had. He, my, my mother was pregnant at the time with my now um, almost 12-year-old half-brother. Um, <laughs> he said, oh, you know, pregnant woman, they're full of hormones. And um, he said pretty nasty things about my father, which I won't re repeat. Um, and uh, other such things, he uh, undermined uh, his colleagues, said really nasty things about members of the female staff. He was a very sexist man, um, homophobic man as well, deeply racist man. Um, yeah. I mean, if you couldn't already tell, he wasn't a great person. Um, um, anyway, he's not getting a job anytime soon. Um, <laughs> so some of that... Um, <laughs> some of that yeah, just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being a child sexual abuse survivor advocate is a natural segue to stand-up comedy, I figure. Um, um, anyway. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and he undermined relationships with my... my, my um, student student peers as well, um, and and then there was this um, the fifth the fifth phase, which is all of these phases are concurrent, so they're happening at the same time, you know, um, and, um, and especially this fifth phase um, because this sort of started at the beginning, and, and it, it it's very this is particularly ins insidious, and it's insidious for a reason um, because it, it involves an element of, of gaslighting um, that plays into your um, self doubt. Um, and, and the, the, the sense of sort of 
conspiracy that they deliberately construct to sort of trap you in their world. Um, and, and that is the sexualisation. Um, and, and, and very early on, I remember him bringing up the concept of sex um, and, and I suppose to test my boundaries. Um, and now at the time, um, and this, is, this has been talked about publicly a little bit, um, but probably not very directly, um, I, I am autistic and I was only diagnosed as a 20-year-old. Um, and, uh, and I don't... Um, I, I, boundaries, I mean, I didn't really understand as a child, except maybe in the concept of tug-of-war. Um, and uh, so I'm not really very good with boundaries. And also because of the way that I went from house to house, I lived my life just pleasing other people and making sure that they were okay and I lived by the rules that other people set and that's what I did. And so I never really considered what my own needs were, what my own boundaries were. I was just like trying to keep the peace wherever I went. And, and I just, yeah, I remember him like bringing up the concept of sex and I just kind of went, whatever um this man's funny weird but that's okay you know and I never thought too much of it but that sexualization is very um gradual insidious and he peppered that into conversation here and there and I remember him exposing me to sexual content like the graduate um and um then that being reinforced in a really eerie way with Simon and Garfunkel's music which was of course the soundtrack to the graduate those of you here in the audience who are of a certain vintage I'm not making any <laughs> there's you, a few you, of us you know um, uh, if, of course you remember like the that, that one song, The Sound of Silence, you know, the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within The Sound of Silence. And all you need to do to trigger me is put me in a little tiny room um, that's with, you know, like 70s furniture and uh, uh, far out, you know, right back there. Um, it's gross. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, the sixth phase is, again, one of the concurrent phases. This is happening throughout the... the, the the, the process of abuse is the, the maintaining control, and that is the, the, the perfect balance that perpetrators are masters at striking, and that is, is um, causing pain but also being the provider of relief from that pain. And again, that feeds mm. into the self-doubt and the confusion. Um, because, and this is where a lot of people who don't have an experience of abuse, um, they, they ask those, um, ignorant questions. Why didn't you just leave? Um, and, you know, um, they're a good person. Um, you know, because it's, 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 it's not as it's not as simple as they just harm you. They also um, they also reward you. They also relieve you. Um, they they build you up as well as break you down. Um, it's the cat and mouse. If anyone's ever owned a cat and watched them torture a mouse by letting them go just a little bit, but then right when the mouse feels like it has enough freedom or agency, it just puts its paw right back down on their tail. It's so cruel. That is exactly what a perpetrator is like. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it is. It's, it's the cruelest thing. And there's a lot about that, Jess, that's actually very similar to what perpetrators of domestic violence are mm -hmm. also yeah. doing. That's what really struck me um, hearing Grace talk and having reread your book in the last sort of week or so, particularly around the isolation and the kind of the breaking down of self-esteem and so on. So whilst the targets are potentially different, there is a, mm. a continuum of behaviour. Mm, and the providing and exactly what Grace is saying about the feedback loop that all of this is happening simultaneously. And I think that being the bringer of pain, shame, isolation, degradation, and then the bringer of relief. Because especially, I think, in intimate partner relationships, um, often that first phase is one of, like, quite intense love and where so many victim survivors, not all, but it is really common to them say, I never felt so loved, so boosted, so understood, like this person was right inside me, like mm. they, they were um, the closest thing I'd ever had. Um, and then to have that person then degrade, threaten, shame project their own, you know, project their own shame on you and do this in a constant feedback loop, it, it's like the only person who can ever absolve you of that shame is the person who gave it to you. Only that person will never absolve you of that shame. Um, but that's what so many people who are subjected to this wait for yeah. and they are held in this suspended animation. Um, and I think what's been really powerful about Grace's work and what I'm really looking forward to now that all of the hoopla of Australian of the Year has, like, passed. <laughs> and, you know, that 
there's so much work going on from so many different people in these seemingly disparate sort of areas of child sexual abuse, of intimate partner violence, of sexual harassment, but with so many similar themes around the systems and the feedback loops that occur to entrap people in these scenarios and in these dynamics that we are going to together start to really help the community understand how these systems work so that they can better prevent themselves from being entrapped in it so they can better identify it when it's happening. It's very hard, even when you know what it looks like to identify when it happens, because the nature of coercive control, the nature of grooming is to make itself invisible. That's the, it is like a sleight of hand from a magician. Um, but... It's not impossible. And I know Grace would have had feedback. I've had feedback from people inside um, coercive control relationships who once they have had it explained and who once they really get it, start to just get this little chink, this little gap where they can see something is going on here that I am starting to be able to put words to. And it can take a long time. It can take, it can take months, years, decades. For some, it will never happen. But it's possible and as Grace says, you know, knowledge is power. It's the good kind of power. It's the kind of power that we need more of. But also, and I'm not saying for child sexual abuse predators and pedophiles, but for some people who are perpetrating this type of thing in intimate partner relationships particularly, sometimes they don't know what they're doing. They don't know that they are replicating the same systems as people with very direct consciousness are inflicting this on people. So sometimes the language for them also helps them identify what they're doing. So this is a huge waking up that the community is going through and I find it profoundly hopeful. And on the, on the issue of prevention, I mean, what I found interesting about the reckoning, as it were, and indeed some of what you describe in your essay, Jess, is it's about um, trying to take, relieve the burden, if you like, from the individuals and look mm. at the systems mm. that are protecting um, perpetrators. And in particular, um, just touching on the issue of harassment, um, you talked about how there was an employment lawyer, Samantha Manguana, who might have migrated here in 2019, and she was shocked at how far behind our workplace cultures were, for example, how archaic they were that allowed debilitating harassment to flourish within them. Um, and Kate Jenkins documented that in her first of the very pivotal reports that she's produced recently, um, commissioned by Kelly O'Dwyer in 2018. Um, what was Kate's findings, um, particularly in relation to what we could do about active prevention of harassment in the workplace? Um, mm. Can you tell us about that and what its current fate seems to be? Mm. Well, it's an ex the Respect at Work inquiry, the report that came from that and the 55 recommendations that stem from it, it's actually one of those rare examples of a report that was actually really useful um, <laughs> um, and, and a review that absolutely needed to happen. I, I remember reading the Respect at Work report from cover to cover and as someone who's been steeped in this for many years now, um, I, I shouldn't be shocked and it takes a lot to shock me. I put that report down and was just sick to my stomach about what's, what is going on in workplaces across the country in every conceivable industry. Worst of all, media and arts, with 80, 81% and 83% of women and men being sexually harassed within arts and media. Um, but what that report really looked at was the ecosystem in which this happens and how we can change that ecosystem. That's why 55 recommendations, they're not meant to be like a lucky dip, like let's close our eyes and just pluck one out and, you know, see how that works. It's not meant to be sliced and diced. It's meant to be brought in as a package because it sees sexual harassment as it works as an ecosystem and it solves it from that system's perspective. The central recommendation that uh, people have focused on as a key intervention point, uh, because in systems, even though you have all of these necessary reforms, sometimes there are key intervention points that will create a massive change, is the positive duty on employers to prevent sexual harassment from happening. Now, when I heard that statement, I was like, what the hell is a positive duty? What the... I don't understand what that means. Um, so it actually took a little while to, to understand. What it means 
is it's putting sexual harassment on the same par as workplace injury as something that employers have a responsibility to prevent from happening, a legal responsibility. Now, if we cast our eyes back to the early 20th century and workplace injuries, we'd be looking at a society that saw workplace injuries much the same as we see sexual harassment now. Unavoidable, unfortunate, sad you got your arm cut off in a factory, but, well, you're just a worker. You know, we'll get another one. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it took decades of unions and workers absolutely pounding the streets to get those laws changed. Now we don't have that happening so often or not as a routine run-of-the-mill type of thing. Um, That's what Kate Jenkins wants to do with sexual harassment. She is a visionary sex discrimination commissioner. She knows that the moment that we are in right now is a rare one and she is absolutely taking advantage of it and doing everything within her power to make this culture-changing moment stick because cultures change this way, they change that way, the wind blows, an event happens, culture changes in the opposite direction. We can't just put all our eggs in the culture-changing basket. It needs to be in reform, in legal reform, in legislative reform, and it needs to happen at the level of government, not at the level of individual workplaces. And I think that's why, you know, Grace and others are doing that work at the legal level. That's where it has to happen. Now, the government to whom Kate Jenkins delivered her report was somewhat different from the one who had commissioned it under Malcolm Turnbull and Kelly O'Dwyer. And Samantha Manguana was surprised by how far the UK was behind the UK, our corporate culture was. Mm. People like Malcolm Turnbull and Julia Banks had been saying, business people prior to entering Parliament, that our parliaments were even further behind than our corporate culture, which is pretty scary. Um, Clearly, the change of leadership in that interregnum period had an impact. Mm. Leadership matters. Mm. Um, And the attitudes of our political leaders in this sensitive area was found to be dramatically wanting. Grace, you've had to deal with the government (laughs) quite frequently over the last year. What would you just what would you say your experience was trying to deal with the current government as you tried to educate them and the rest of Australia about the critical and sensitive issues? Or is it all in the eyebrow all in the uh, eyelashes right there? <laughs> Don't reckon I've to say shit. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh dear, it's been an interesting journey. Um, and I look, I've got to admit, um, when I had, you know, when I stepped onto that stage on the 25th of January last year. I was pretty politically naive. I reckon I, you know, I'm an optimist. I (laughs) came out there and, you know, um, when I entered this space, you know, I, 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 and I still do. You know, I, I, I actually try, despite what the media says a lot about me. A lot, of, well, certain people in the me- media, <coughs> Andrew Bolt, <coughs> uh, Mark Latham. <coughs> um, you know, they try to say that I'm divisive, and um, you know, I, I do want to work with um, people on all sides. So I'm actually, believe it or not, apolitical. Um, you know, and I believe in, in, in being able to put differences aside in the spirit of progress when you've got a common goal, especially when it comes to the abuse of children, um, you know, that, that, that transcends politics. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> you also have to draw a line in the sand um, at some point and, and you know, like... Um, <laughs> a certain person... Is uh, not authentic, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I think. That um, look, yeah. Look, I've I've um, I've sat down with um, politicians on all sides. Uh, I've met with a lot of people throughout the year. Um, you know, and and Max and I have just established the creatively named Grace Tame Foundation. <laughs> Tried, forget it. Look, we tried to come up with another name and we just, um, we, we found it's quite difficult, you know, because if you, especially when you're doing, when you're dealing with a really sensitive topic and you come up with a name and there's lots of foundations that are already established and you get something that's close, too close to something else, you know, run the risk of, anyway. Um, but we, you know, we, we're, we're determined to, 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 to do the work that we need and, and, and work with wh- whoever we have to work with, um, you know, because as, as I said, you know, that the goal is more important than anything else. 
Um, but we've found that um, certain, certain people, certain groups are more concerned with um, maintaining power and control yeah. than running the country. Well, I mean, I think Jess... Yeah, like and that's sad. literally yeah. in a nutshell. And, that's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's the sad truth. And I don't, I don't want that to be the case. You know, and as I said, I, 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 I stepped off that stage and I entered this space um, with, with hope in my heart. And I've still got that hope. It's, you know, there's, there's a little bit of cynicism mixed in there now. But, uh, you know, I'm still going to keep, keep doing what I'm doing, um, you know. But, but that's the sad truth. And, um, you know, I did. I received a threatening phone call and you know what it wasn't an empty threat I didn't share this at the National Press Club but you know what you know what the threat was from that person who phoned me was that they wouldn't support the foundation if I said something about the Prime Minister yeah. Yeah. and there and that's, therein lies the rub and therein that, that's the yeah. rub that's why and that's why <laughs> what Grace has been doing this year in terms of speaking honestly comes as quite a surprise for a lot of people because a lot of um, foundations, a lot of the parts of the sector who are government funded cannot speak with that type of, uh, be that candid because they rely on government funding. That's right. Yeah. And, and it pains the people who are in those positions. Um, what Grace has done seems so outrageous to some people because they're not used to hearing it because everyone else has just been trying to keep the water from submerging the people that they're working with, you know, just trying to keep it at bay, keep enough government funding so the whole thing doesn't go under. But Grace doesn't have to do that and that's why she's so powerful and so effective. But to me, I tell you... I'll tell you a little story. To me, because to me it's, excuse my English, I swear a lot. And I warned the National Australia Day Council when they... Yeah. <laughs> you told us you were a boat. My mum would, would be upset, you know, because my mum's a lovely, lovely lady, but I'm a little bit rougher around the edges than my mum. Um, she says, you don't have to swear, um, but I can't help it. Because um, to me it's the, same, it's the same shit that I saw with this pedophile, you know, as I said. Um, not only, you know, was he a mastermind at, 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 at his behaviour, you know, and, and he had all these victims before me, but the school, the school knew. They knew about these girls. There was staff there that, that, that told... The first girl was in 1993. And the male principal at the time, the, the, there was a female principal that came after him, but the male principal at the time was told about this girl. And you know what he did? He went round to this pedophile's house with a slab of beer and he said, oh, could you tone it down? It's the same shit. People smile and they just, you know, they just excuse it. And, and, and it's... it's you know, I saw it over and over and over again. There were people that, that actually, I, I believe, knew it was happening when it was happening to me. And they pretended that everything was okay. And a lot of people that I've spoken to who are abused never, never actually stood up to their abusers. Um, but I did. Not only did I report this pedophile to police, I did something that I never thought that I would do and it's, this is what actually I remember whenever I think that I can't do something like frown at the Prime Minister. <laughs> yeah. Whenever I think I can't do something, I remember this day. And I was terrified when I did this. But this is what I draw on when I need self-belief. I was terrified of this pedophile. He wasn't just a pedophile. He was a soldier in South Africa, a South African man. He told me stories of killing people. So he's also a murderer. I actually stood up to him four days before I reported him to police. I'd been submissive. He'd never seen my true rage towards him. But as he sat in his office chair, I pointed a finger at him. I was crying my eyes out. I started yelling and screaming and I told him exactly what I thought of him for the first time. 
I told him I thought he was a monster. And I told him I thought... I thought he was pure evil and that I hoped he died. And I pointed to a picture of his own children who were twice my age at the time. And I told him I hated him for what he had done to me and for what he was doing to them too. I told him that and I will always remember that. And you know what? So will he. So my fear of upsetting the apple cart died that day and it sure as hell died publicly standing next to Scott Morrison. Well, that, that does seem... That, that does seem really to encapsulate a lot of what a lot of women were feeling over women the and last men. 12 to 18 Women months. and men. Yeah. It's all of us. It's all of us. You don't have to participate in this trivial, superficial continuation of mindless abuse culture just for the sake of civility. No. You know what? Rudeness is subjective, but hypocrisy is self-defeating. I think it was over the last 12 months that we really saw how far our parliaments were from setting the standard. And there were so many women um, in particular, some men too, who last year did say, enough is enough. And they were able to really get back our version of the Me Too movement, if you like. And, and there was, that you describe in your essay, the resurgency of it began, didn't mm. it? And there was an insurgency and a resurgency that was happening at the same time over the course of the last 12 months. Mm. And you became a big part of that, Joe. Um, <laughs> you know, um, your friendship and your loyalty and your steadfastness and your courage have been central to this story. Um, and I know, yeah, well, big anyway, part. yeah, a huge part. Um, because it's about people who are willing to risk their comfort to establish a new normal. And that's what both of you are doing. It's, um, it's something that it keeps me engaged in this subject matter. I don't have a history of abuse um, or gendered violence. I write about this because I get to be around people like you guys and, I, and it makes life something so much bigger than what I had before on that personal level. I think what people got a sense of last year was together we can actually do this. We can actually bring about this change. Together as a community, as the people who are taking the risks on a public stage, this does not have to be unavoidable. It does not have to be what we all just put up with. And it is central to us being able to address the major problems that are besetting us. Everything from racism, from climate change, to gendered violence, everything that is threatening to overwhelm us as a society coming together and understanding and seeing how it works and putting something at stake to change it, that is what is in all of our power to do and it's what we must do because I'm sure many of you, you know, I came from Sydney last, um, last night. No one has ever seen flooding like what is happening in New South Wales and Queensland. The rain that is falling out of the sky doesn't stop. I've never been afraid of water like I have been in the last week. It's the same fear that I had of the bushfires in 2019 and 2020 in my family who were down south and for the billion animals who perished. This is what is at stake. All of this is interconnected. This is the system that we are all living in. It's not just gendered violence. It's not just any one of these issues operating in isolation. And this is what we all have to stand up and say no more. We are going to overthrow 
this old way of thinking, these dominator cultures that produce this type of result and we are going to come together and instead of just letting the world go off a cliff, we are going to salvage it back. And I think that is, um, if anything, that is the key thing that we have heard from so many of our speakers here this week is that when leadership fails, mm. when we are failed by our leaders, then it is incumbent on all of us mm. to, continue, to, to step up and to say we as citizens are going to do something different. Mm. Um, Grace, that's clearly been such a, a motivation for you to, and the fact that you have stepped up with your brothers and your sisters mm. and so many others alongside you. But nonetheless, the leadership role that you have had foisted upon you in, in many ways as first Tasmanian of the Year and then Australian of the Year. I mean, your life has been transformed. Um, how have you been throughout that process? And, and you've obviously had Max steadfast <laughs> beside you and you have given such strength to so many, but I hope through it all you too um, have felt the support and the solidarity that we all have for you and how we admire what you have done. Aww. Thank you. Now, um, I don't think we're going to have time to go to questions, I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we did start a little bit late and I apologise for that. Um, but also, some of what obviously we've talked about today has been very sensitive uh, for people on this stage and off. Um, so I want to thank uh, Grace for everything you've done, um, but for being here today. Can I? You can. Can I You just? are going to have the final word no, for sure. No, yeah, no, and that is, that is to thank the people of Australia for your generous support of people like me, um, but also all the people that came before me, um, you know, because an advocate is only as uh, successful as their supporters. Because one thing to have a message, it's another thing for it to be so warmly received and, and carried on. And um, yeah, I wouldn't be here, and, and, and um, you know, all the people that, that, that do the work around me wouldn't be here if it weren't for, for people like you who actually just carry it along. So thanks. Yeah. Um, I want to thank uh, Jess as well. Her essay is masterful. Um, we didn't look. I just threw this away about halfway through because they were so much more interesting <laughs> than anything I had to say. But I really do recommend you buy this um, because it is a wonderful account of what we've all been living through over the past few years and Jess will be there to sign it too. And I want to thank our wonderful interpreter who's been doing Yay. such a good job too. So thank you all very much for coming. Uh, go buy the book. Um, we've got one more session here today and one more day tomorrow of the 2022 Writers' Week.